Your dialogue at the end of this program says, this is your program. Well, I am taking you up on that, Mr. Kingsley. Tomorrow morning, this program is going to be mine. <laughs> You're not a sort of uh, a moral crusader, are you? will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections, from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. I'm almost tempted to use as a text for the sermon today a line you may remember from school by a poet named John Dutt. Oh, here it comes. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. I happen to have with me in the studio today a very desperate man. He has a Marantz digital recorder and a grievance. He is about to ventilate the grievance, and very possibly thereafter, me. I give you most willingly... Yeah, nicely done. Mr. Glenn Weldon. Mr. Weldon, it's all yours. Mr. Klimek is wrong about the grievance. Now, um, uh, as you know, Chris, our listeners cannot see us, but they also <laughs> know that you were kind of uh, pulling their legs there by saying we were in the studio together, because of course we're not. We are in separate Zoom locations because of the plague. Um, and I am taping, as you can plainly see in your Zoom uh, window, uh, not from my normal studio, which is a tiny cramped space underneath the stairs to, uh, around which we have you know, nailed dog blankets and put some throw pillows yeah. in to make it as you, cushy you as You are the, instead, the person beneath the stairs, I am, ordinarily. Uh, instead, I am, I am recording today from the, what we call the Kingsley Suite. It's a perfect <laughs> space for sound recording as seen in the movie that we're going to talk about today. It's an airy two-story men's room in an Ikea. Uh, a lot of hard surfaces, a lot of floor-to-ceiling windows. It's all press board and glass, the ideal place to record a radio show. I like that John Kingsley likes the way that the sound of ice clinking in, in his glass as he refills his gin colors the sound of his show, a frequent feature of your track on this podcast, Glenn. Um, you, yes. sh you should get one of those swivel boom mics, one of those overhead boom mics that he has so that he can change locations while he's yep. speaking. Uh, so, so he can, he can just p position it over the bar to record the sound <laughs> of him pouring himself some white liquor. Yes. <laughs> some Tanqueray, I believe it is. It did. Do, yeah. It looked like a Tanqueray bottle, which um, it's uh, it's not Canadian, is it? Is there any Canadian gin? Uh, what is Canadian Club? What is that? I don't know what that is. Um, no, I don't, not that I whiskey? know of off the top of my damn head. I don't I'm know sure there is anything about uh, Yeah, that that's gonna that's gonna take it out on your liver, and it's gonna take it out on your uh, nose. You know, on the blood vessels in your nose. Like that's if that's a habit, a bottle of gin a day habit. That's uh, 
that, that explains a lot of his temperament, I would say. Well, Patty McGee um, in the film we'll be discussing today, which was shot in 1977, so some years before it actually saw release. But that means he's not yet 50 years old. But uh, he is he is looking his years suddenly. This is less than 10 years after The Prisoner. This is only the year after Silver Streak, mm-hmm. right? But um, Yeah, I think so. 77, yeah. He's looking rough. Uh, he's we, also looking pale. That might be uh, a byproduct of it being in Canada, in Montreal. Yes. Specifically. I don't know if it was filmed there. I, I think it most was. Most of what we see of Montreal is stock footage, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly... Certainly, yeah. he had Strangely, this... it was all taken from Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. <laughs> That's right. Was... It's, he had a, a weird late 70s, early 80s affection for Canada, did our boy Patty. Because between this and Scanners, he spent a lot of time <laughs> up in a great white north, eh? Yeah, uh, this, this movie is not trying to hide its, its Canadian identity in, in the way that, that Scanners was. He edited, Alexis Canada uh, famously edited this film together for two years. Uh, and according, if the sound mixing is to be any, if we were to judge by the sound mix, he spent about a good solid afternoon probably on mixing the sound. Now, that's unfair because as we will go into, we saw this film on a YouTube dub from a video cassette. So this is six or seven degrees of degradation. You know, weirdly, it, it looked like... I mean, it had the scan lines of a video cassette, but it also had um, the real change markers. So did you see that in the top of the frame? You know how you see those little little circles to tell the projectionist yep. it's time to. So, I guess this thing must have been shown on film at at some point. Um, yeah, sure. And then yeah. sourced to to VHS from that. Yeah, it it looked bad and it sounded worse. Really sounded uh, terrible. Now. Some of that might have been intentional. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt because he's certainly a devotee of Altman's overlapping dialogue. Um, And he's constantly filtering what people are saying through loudspeakers or through radio speakers to kind of give you the sense of everything anybody says is garbled and nobody's really communicating, Chris. Uh, and, uh, you know, and often he does it in ways, and this has to do with his artsy-fartsy approach. I mean, he, he's often doing it in ways where we don't see who is speaking. We get this handheld camera work where we might see somebody's arm on a steering wheel, but we never see a face. So it's all meant to be intentionally disorienting. Right. But add to that the crappy sound quality of the YouTube dub, and man, this is often impenetrable. I have a word for you in a gesture, Glenn, because we, we have come at last to the movie that we actually do have license to talk about where the dialogue is is mixed way below the music so that, that that weird synth score which is mm-hmm. frequently but not always christmas carols um yeah but otherwise this kind of not quite john carpenter sort of repetitive horror movie synth thing mm-hmm. uh competing with the dialogue also seems like the dialogue maybe wasn't wasn't recorded all that well. And then whoever encoded this, uploaded it to YouTube, could have also not used best practices doing that. So it's it's hard. I, I mean, there there is enough evidence to get that Cantor wanted to manipulate the sound, wanted to use kind of a collage approach. I think the the Altman comparison is is right, although in this case, it's not even always clear that what we're hearing is people speaking to one another. I mean, it could be someone's internal monologue sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's really, really difficult to parse that. This film is also difficult to follow, narratively just hard to follow. It's our tenet. Yeah, and director, editor, 
co-writer Alexis Kenner, star, uh, co-star Alexis Kenner, really set himself up a challenge by recording sound in that loft space that serves as Patty's uh, studio, uh, John Kingsley's studio, because that even in the scenes themselves, even in the running of the film, there's an echo because the boom mic operator just can't capture <laughs> the sound in, in a way that, in, in a dead space, in a way that yeah. you want to be able to capture sound so that it is uh, leg- uh, hearable, legible, what is the word I'm looking for there? Audible? Discernible. Yes. We are sponsored this week by discernible.com. There we go. It, it just, it's the worst possible place to record sound. <laughs> and of course, that is a, uh, ostensibly a radio station where you can talk to your boss over a loudspeaker. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. In uh, Dolomite and all those Rudy Ray Moore movies, the boom mic would dip into frame sometimes, but you could hear what they were saying to each other. Yep. Yep. So do we need to welcome the listeners in, Chris? I suppose we do. <laughs> Why are we being so generous with them? Well, of course, it's because in 1966, Patrick McGowan starred the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where many residents, I'd say the majority of residents, are referred to only by number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously in lava lamp of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. And then, in 1977, Prisoner three-timer Alexis Cantor... Canner, Canner, not Cantor, right? I keep calling not him Canter. Canter like he's a deli. Canner, Canner. <laughs> nope. Read the box. Read the name in the box. Canner. Uh-huh. There's no T. Uh-huh. Co-wrote, directed, and played second fiddle only to Patty McGee in a hostage drama that, uh, as you said, took two years to edit, which uh, didn't get seen in Canada until 1981. I don't think it came out in the States until it got shown at some film festival in 1983. Apparently there was a VHS release in 1989. I found mention of this thing in all places, Glenn, in a Guardian profile of Martin McDonough, the great playwright Martin McDonough, playwright filmmaker, who mentioned this as a a film that both he and, and his brother John Michael McDonough, also a filmmaker, had returned to again and again. They both really, really liked this movie. It was a seminal item for the guy who yes, made... Yes, uh, was it part of John McTiernan's diet? That's the question we have to get to. Yeah, we'll talk about it. I've been preparing for this discussion my entire life, Glenn. I figured you have. So welcome, everybody, to the private, personal, by-hand, tangent-tolerant, but properly punctuated, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and related documents, <clears throat> and we push it like a snowblower down a Montreal sidewalk two days before Christmas. Oh, sure. Um, I don't actually remember seeing any snowblowers in the film, but you would need to do that. And by the way, Montreal is a beautiful city. Uh, it's one of my, my husband's favorite cities in all the world. Um, I've not been there, but uh, this is not a tourist brochure for that city, man. This is nothing but snow, slush, and brutalist architecture. This is a stay away from Montreal movie. Um, I'm going to give that a five out of six, Chris. Thanks, buddy. I took a driving trip to Montreal once in September. I recommend it. September's a beautiful time to visit. We file it like a 29-year-old Margaret Trudeau petitioning for a dissolution of her marriage to 58-year-old then-Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau shortly before appearing in the film Kings and Desperate Men, but six years after giving birth to current Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Oh, see, it's facts. One to grow on. Six out of six. Wow. Our home and native land, true.
all downhill from here. We stamp it like General Zod responding to the news that there is one man on Earth, a.k.a. Planet Houston, who will never bow to him, asking, who is this imbecile? Where is he? Okay, we've, used, we've yeah. used the stamp of Zod before. <laughs> I'm going to give that a two out of six. Harsh. We index it like a copy of Bartlett's familiar quotations resting on the ah. desk of Looch radio chat show host John Kingsley. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, A, that you spotted the Bartlett's, and, and two, that you used the word louche. Uh, six out of six. Wow. This is my, my best ever score. All right. Watch it plummet now. We brief it. Like 37-year-old Denzel the Dashing of House Washington in the 1991 thriller Ricochet, also starring Ice-T, whom you hilariously conflated with Vanilla Ice in our prior episode, Glenn, removing his LAPD patrolman's uniform ostensibly to prove to deranged hostage-taker John Lithgow that he had neither a Kevlar vest nor any concealed weapons beneath his tunic nor his pantaloons. Only he did have a backup firearm, Glenn, holstered in his briefs. As he is later heard to remark after apprehending John Lithgow, the hostage taker, I guess a bread in the butt beats a butterfly to boot, huh? Okay, it's one out of six. I don't, it's nothing. It has nothing to do with this except <laughs> hostage taking. That's, that's the link. Yeah. One out of six. One out of six. Fine. Okay. We debrief it like Denzel the Wise of House Washington, kneeling at the side of one the... One out of six. Uncharacteristically enraged eminent Academy Award winner Will Smith, now the stale king of Bel Air, to caution him, mm. it's when you're at your highest moment that the devil comes for you. One out of six. A one for that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such a high news value. It's, it's already a dated reference and it happened two days ago. Come on. Come on. Stale king of Bel Air? No, I got it. I heard it. You heard what I said. Yeah. One out of six. That's... Okay, fine. You deserve this, Glenn. Mm -hmm. We number it like the second Die Hard film, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, or the international release of the fourth Die Hard film, Domestically Live Free or Die Hard, but known outside of the U.S. as Die Hard 4.0. But unlike the third entry in the storied series, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and even more unlike the fifth installment because it just doesn't exist, Glenn. It never happened. There just wasn't wasn't a fifth one. Uh, We number it like two of the... Four, not five of those. Yeah, well, that's, you say two of the four, not five. I say two out of the six. Because, I mean, yes, okay, Die Hard. We invoke Die Hard because of this particular film. Otherwise, no connection. So, two out of six. Glenn, for a potential six extra points, mm-hmm. I don't know why you get points here. Uh, what is the Joel Silver produced film wherein beloved character actor Mary Ellen Trainer? reprises her role from Die Hard as Los Angeles Evening News anchor Gail Wallens. Oh boy, I don't know. Would it be Lethal Weapon? I don't know. And watch for the ricochet! Suicide, it's a suicide. Yeah! No, it was uh, Ricochet, which I mentioned just a minute ago, Glenn, and if you were paying attention in your haste to give me a one out of six, you, you might have gotten this one right. Yeah, well, see, I wasn't paying attention. That's <laughs> the whole point. 1991's Ricochet. Denzel, Lethgow, Kevin Pollack, and Ice-T. That's Ice-T, not Vanilla Ice. Both acting and performing the title jam, which 30 years later, still in my emergency running playlist for when I find myself out of gasoline and still two miles from home. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. When I'm in New York, I build with the gods. So don't try to deny me my proper truth. 
Before we do, I will bring all the acumen and attention I brought to this recent discussion to that film. We're going to talk McGoohans, we're going to talk McGuffins. Our inquiry into this televisionary landmark and related documents and ephemera is not of a degree qualified. Nope. It is not of a degree capricious. No way. It is not of a degree erratic. Um, I mean, it kind of is, but I'll, I'll, I'll say no. <laughs> what is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute, Chris. Very good. Yeah, so uh, our boy gets top billing here. And I think he deserves it. Um, if for the drunk scene alone, we open in Montreal uh, with some stock footage of an ice skating rink. Yep. Um, we get this weird up tempo. I would have think it's klezmer music, but it's certainly Christmas associated. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is acting with Margaret Trudeau, and I, had, in my reading, I, I thought she was still first lady of whatever the equivalent of prime minister is um, yeah Canada at the time she wasn't though i think they had just divorced but i might yeah. be wrong about that patty mcgee is playing john kingsley a, a talk radio host because talk radio was a big thing then uh the englishman's englishman the man everybody loves to hate um yeah. and he is, is uh December- jeff bridges at the beginning of the fisher king in this movie yes all right, I forgot about that. Uh, it is December 23rd. We are in his studio, an airy two-story loft space with nothing but hard reflective surfaces, <laughs> baffleless mics with floor-to-ceiling windows. He does have a setup over the bar so we can slurp down some gin. There is a carpeted wall, to be fair, to the movie, but it is so far the hell away. <laughs> and even in the movie itself, as I said, mentioned, we are hearing an echo. All pressboard furniture, all Ikea laminate, uh, all white and that's that's <laughs> where we set our scene. Um, he is talking on his radio show with a Judge McManus. And I want to give this actor credit because this is a, a smallish role in the film. And this this actor is investing Justice McManus with choices. With his, um, he's making choices. He is, he is not giving you day player. He is giving you uh, a rounded character. He seems kind of worried to be talking to uh, John Kingsley, Patty McGee, in this scene. He, and he says, he will say later that he doesn't like to discuss his sentences, but he spends this entire scene discussing a harsh sentence he has just instituted on somebody who killed a cop with a car. Uh, I note that it, it, the sentence is criminal negligence, not vehicular manslaughter, um, which I think is a... Sounds, sounds pretty Canadian. Yeah, maybe. But um, anyway, I think vehicular manslaughter carries a a sterner sentence. But the thing is, the thing upon which our tale revolves is the fact that the sentence this guy got was uh, very high. And uh, in some people's views, uh, too high. So again, we cut to a car. Hang on, hang on. We get to the play-by-play here. But, um, you know, it occurs to me, like, were I to attempt to synopsize this in just a couple sentences, I'm not sure... That I could, but I'm I'm glad you you have already confirmed that what I wasn't sure I understood correctly I apparently did, which is that these hostage takers, these these people who seize people and threaten violence in two separate locations, coordinated, who take the trouble of wiring the building with explosives, and we see that they actually did that. Right? It's not a bluff, mm-hmm. and they are motivated not by some political agenda, but because they thought their friend got too harsh a sentence for accidentally killing someone in a car accident mm-hmm. a cop killing a cop okay yeah but that's not the same thing as as you know killing a cop in the commission of a crime yeah 
I, I, there's a real disconnect there. Like, why why didn't they just write an op-ed? Why didn't they just ask to go on uh, the John Kingsley show, you know, sans shotgun and explosives? It sounds like Kingsley would probably welcome that. There is a few layers of unnecessary convolution in this script. because One of the things that is needlessly confusing is that this whole two-location thing. They will take John Kingsley hostage in his loft-slash-studio, but it will also take John Kingsley's wife and child hostage in... Uh, the apartment building, which means we have two locations to keep track of and wonder if the cops are surrounding both locations or just one. And if we're seeing the cops, are they positioned outside the studio or are they positioned outside the apartment? It seems like if you would only take the script and streamline it so there's only one location, a skyscraper, say, mm-hmm. in some kind, possibly in some place more warm and and, and, uh, and inviting, like Los Angeles. Yeah. It seems like you could take this script and really streamline it into something else. Do you want to go into the Die Hard thing? Much in the same way that John McTiernan, when he got his hands on the, the screenplay for Die Hard, which was adapted from Roderick Thorpe's novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, mm-hmm. the first thing he said was, well, we need to compress this. This should all take place over the course of one night. Uh-huh. No one wants to watch a movie about a, a siege that lasts for days and people are stinking in their clothes and, you know, getting hungry and needing to go to the bathroom. And McTiernan's whole thing was like, if I can make this take place over the course of one night and it's Christmas Eve, now there's an element of fantasy. There's an element of magic to it. He actually invokes a Midsummer Night's Dream when he talks about this on the, the Die Hard commentary track. So that that was the the value that that, that compression brought to to that story. Um, didn't hear anything about him having read a, a, a screenplay <laughs> by one Alexis Kanner. Uh, since you brought it up, though, Glenn, I did go to the 1992 New York Times piece by Joy Horwitz. Mm-hmm. Headline, Hollywood Law, Whose Idea Is It Anyway? Mm-hmm. Where she mentioned that the Die Hard suit, which runs to 352 pages and includes, uh, is, is given a title. Apparently, it's not standard for a lawsuit to have a title. At least not a you know colorful title, but uh, Mr. Canner called it Anatomy of a Ripoff. Huh. Called uh, Die Hard, quote unquote, the wholesale cinematic xeroxing and cinematic rape, cinematic oh. rape <laughs> of his <laughs> film Kings and Desperate Men about a hostage taken by terrorists. The suit alleges that while Mr. Canner was negotiating with CBS and Fox to distribute his film in the United, United States, Die Hard was being developed by Fox executives. And seeking to dismiss the suit, Fox attorneys described Mr. Canner's claim as, quote, legally innocuous chaff. Chaff or chaff? The wheat from the chaff. Sh- chaff. Wheat, from the, wheat from the chaff. The yes. stuff that's not wheat. Yeah, not wheat. They said his suit was gluten-free and meritless. Gluten-free, yeah. I mean, really, though, like, what is the the point of comparison is hostage-taking and Christmas. And Skyscraper. I would say Skyscraper is in there. Okay, Um, but if you... you, Explosives is in there. uh, All right, so you you replace a wisecracking trapped cop with a drunk, cynical (laughs) guy who makes no effort to escape, who who actually encourages his hostage takers, who actually, who's who's giving his captor tips on how to sound better on the radio, on on mic placement. I think this is a very, very casual resemblance. Yep. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And at no point does Patty McGee curl his toes into carpet, even though, of course, it would be hard-pressed to do in that particular space because there's no fucking carpet in that place. I do imagine the, the Patty McGee cameo as, uh, you know, the guy who's sitting on the plane next to McLean and die. Would you like to know the secret <laughs> to surviving air travel? Exactly. 
Take off your shoes and your socks. (laughs) (laughs) We do get, we should note here, if it doesn't come up, we do get some pretty classic Patty McGee here. We get some rolled R's. We get some lint. We get some um, over-articulated consonants at the ends of words. We get a lot of what makes Patty McGee Patty McGee. So again... There's a lot of ADR in this film as well. This film does not need ADR to be even more confusing and, and muddled than it is, but it's got plenty How can of, you tell, you know, when you're just looking at... Because the, per, the same person will be speaking a sentence, and in the second sentence it sounds like they are in an entirely different place, even though they're theoretically in the same car. And it's all done in an attempt to clarify what is intentionally disorienting. Um, it is three yeah. thirty-five on uh, December twenty-third. Uh, Paddy McGee and his wife are at the party of his boss, Mister Aldini, which is a pretty sweet kind of chateau castle on the outskirts of Montreal. She says to him, and this is Paddy McGee playing drunk. Paddy McGee loves to play drunk, and he will get several op- opportunities in this film. Uh, she says, "You're drunk." He says, "You're rich," which is a good a good exchange that I desperately wanted to be able to hear more clearly because there's some good writing here. You have to really strain for it. Um, Kingsley's wife leaves first. Uh, the, the mysterious people in the car watch her go. Then uh, one of the people in the car, a woman, gets out and gets into Kingsley's car. We don't actually see that happen. We just learn that it happens later. This is the way a lot of things in this film happen. Kingsley's wife goes home to their just tall skyscraper apartment. That elevator goes and goes and goes. She gets assaulted in the hallway. Back at the party, a guy dressed as a waiter um, whose Irish accent creeps in to what he says, even though he's supposed to be Canadian. He distracts the judge's driver. It's Montreal. It's judge. an international city, Glenn. Of course. And he gets the judge to use him, the waiter guy, as his driver. Um, the girl gets Kingsley to drive her to his uh, apartment slash studio, his <laughs> studio apartment. <laughs> right, okay. Now, you, you, you are not going to speed through this, Glenn. There's some flirting here, and it was uncomfortable. You can take it take I it wouldn't say flirt. I mean, this, this is a honey trap, right? This yeah. is a, a hot young lady coming on to a much older guy. And yeah. at this point, I will admit, I was still a little hazy as to whether Ms. Trudeau was playing his wife or his daughter, because it could be oh. either one. And, you know, I mean, of course, she had just split from her real husband, who is, you know, even another 10 years beyond the age that McGowan was at this point. Mm-hmm. But we have not seen, <laughs> we have famously seen the opposite of any McGee character being guided by pursuit of sex, right? Being susceptible to that. And he's really playing it here. First of all, the, this woman in his car, she's in a like a fur coat and you sort of got like a low neckline. So it's I think it's sort of suggested that she's not wearing anything under the, the, the mm-hmm. coat. And we later see that she is. But um, he gets in the car, finds her sitting there and he says something like, oh, hello. If you're a Christmas present, you should be gift wrapped. <laughs> you're a Christmas present, you should be gift wrapped. <laughs> he thinks she's coming on to him and, you know, she's a groupie or something and he is happy to oblige. I'm cold. What makes you cold? I, uh, I went to a party. Mm-hmm. Just a ways down the road. And I stayed too long. 20 minutes. They were very friendly. 
Awfully. Very? Oh, very. Very, very? Can I help at all with them anyway? I was thinking, um, in terms of a cognac. Oh, cognac. Nice, warm, uncomplicated cognac. I think I can help. But there's no such thing as an uncomplicated cognac with a strange, seemingly naked woman who just shows up in your car. And not for nothing, she resembles his spouse substantially, it's both true. both in age and in hair color and facial structure. That kind of rang true for me, too, for this sort of character. It's like, hey, it's uh, my wife, but without the annoying kid. <laughs> sure, let's let's go to my studio. I'll, I'll show you my highly sound reflective Formica <laughs> countertops. Yep. Um, Patty McGee in Lust Mode is not um what's the word hot uh what he's doing with his gloved hand is he's rubbing it against his lips as he speaks to her in a way that is profoundly unsettling uh but he does take her back but believably lecherous is my point yes like i I, creepy. right i agree that i get that um and the decor at this place we get a better look at it now and it's a yikes it's just more hard reflective services plus an egg lamp um, a glowing egg, which is almost a glowing <laughs> rover, but it's not. Uh, she's flirting. He is drunk. She goes upstairs where he has, he has another bed. There's a bed downstairs and a bed upstairs. What do you need? What is, what is this place? Anyway. You sound like Patty McGee asking Richard Widmark, what would you possibly do with two women, Glenn? That's true. You sound so confused. And there is some good, I mean, for all the handheld, intentionally disconcerting, camera work here. There is some good camera placement every so often here because we see Alexis Kenner just appear at the top of the stairs. He makes Alexis Kenner always knows how to make an entrance. His name is Miller. Lucas Miller. He is taking over this studio and to prove that this just basically Philip Johnson glass house is soundproof uh, she blows away she takes a shotgun. A sawed off shotgun probably, right? It just looks like a shorty shotgun. Kingsley Describes it as uh, sawed off. Okay. The double barrel, two shots, and then you gotta you gotta break it. Shotgun. Okay. Uh, she blows away a photo of Patty McGee with a shotgun. Uh, Patty McGee is unruffled. We should uh, we should take if there was a verbal macro, we should use that a lot. We'll be using that a lot throughout this film because he spends most of this film completely unruffled above it all. It's unfortunate that the the photo of him that that she shoots. Um, is is not this one, but there there was on on his wall uh, a shot of him a in, in, in a tuxedo. A yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, 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 yeah. yep. Back at his apartment, his wife is still being held. Back at the car, the judge is being held down. There's some very ad libbed dialogue here that I was very tough to make out because it was all overlapping. Uh, the two thugs tell Mrs. Kingsley that they're trying to get a guy out of jail. The first sort of unadorned piece of exposition we get in this otherwise <laughs> almost nearly expositionless movie. Yeah, sort of uh, abstract. Yes. At the studio, Miller tells Kingsley he's going to be taking over his show and that they have gel ignite in the building, and this causes ver- various scenes of the building being evacuated. Again, there is no connective tissue between those two statements. We are meant to infer that that's what's going on. One of the henchmen who is holding... 
Kingsley's wife and his child is sort of mean and creepy. The other one is serving off big uh, Christopher Hitchens energy. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I was also I'm not not to say that Christopher Hitchens wasn't mean and creepy. He kind of was mean and creepy too. But like this one, uh, he complains that he's going bald. He quotes uh, the wind in the willows to the kid. Um, there's lots of overlapping dialogue here. Yeah. The cops are surrounding the apartment and the studio. Yeah, go ahead. And the other guy who is an American, he claims another nationality. And then he says that again and says, well, you know, Italian American or whatever it is. But but he, yeah. he sounds distinctly American. And he is doing the guy in the plot who we're afraid is going to lose his shit and hurt somebody. He's the guy who says, oh, I could take your, your kid's doesn't talk much. He seems like there's something wrong with him. I could I could take him out and drop him on his head for you. Mm-hmm. Like so many things in this film, that's that's never developed. That never becomes a real source of tension. Yep. The rogue member of the abduction squad. But uh, we get a little bit of that. I think what I might be noticing here, because there's a scene now in the cop in the police station where a lot of cops are talking at once. I think what I might be picking up on here is that these characters, these actors are not individually mic'd. There's one central boom mic. And so so he wants to capture the overlapping dialogue, but that yeah. just means sometimes the cop is saying something about how these people don't understand violence. They don't understand how fragile a human skull is, which is a nice moment, but it is not given the room it needs to breathe, to be a moment, to, yeah. have, to be a scene. It mm-hmm. is just something that people say. Because again, this is... It's attempting a cinema verite style. It's attempting to capture moments in a way with a kind of ultra-realist lack of panache or style. Meanwhile, it is deliberately being abstracted in ways that seem to be kind of competing against each other. Uh, The goons take the judge to a safe house. There is a nice moment back at the studio where the girl, who I believe is just, that's her... That's what she's listed in as in the credits, right? The girl. I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, it was also tough to read the credits because they were kind of blurry because videotape. Basically, everything that that did not have the opening titles like swoop in, swoop out font effect seemed like a weird tonal choice for this movie to have the the swooping Superman, the motion picture cast names. But I always enjoy it when I see it. There is a really nice moment when the girl goes with her shotgun to the window. She sees a police sniper. She waves at him, and he waves back. I like that. Yeah. I mean, in another mm-hmm. movie, that would be a small thing. Here, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but it's a nice, it's a nice moment. Uh, we get some sudden teletype drama <laughs> at nine twenty-seven when uh, the teletype goes yeah. off. I was just wondering exactly what time it was in universe, and and exactly. just as I'm asking the question. <laughs> and uh, this is his boss. Or the cops sending him, uh, Kingsley, background information on the guy who's taking hostage. Why would they do that when they know the guy is right there? That's a very good question, but they do it anyway. Uh, this is how, how we learn that there are um, uh, a SWAT team, or whatever the Canadian equivalent of a SWAT team is, uh, outside the door listening in. That place is bugged. In the uh, the credits, they're listed as the, the special squad <laughs> or special something squad. like that. Okay. <laughs> special squad, eh? Yeah, hut, 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 hut. He's uh, tired of uh, teaching history. He prefers to shape some part of it himself. Kingsley calls his son and sings him home on the range in a kind of weird, atonal. Yes. Plays with the rhythm, plays with the (laughs) the syntax. It's a real Philip Glass. The verse kind of sits in the lyric. (laughs) Like it's uh, kind of... 
home on the range. Uh, home. Home. Home on the range. By the deer. And the antelope play. I seldom is heard a discouraging word. And the skies are not cloudy. Okay. Please don't do that, Daddy. It's <laughs> <That's> upsetting. <laughs> the deer, the antelope, play. My. So there is this weird flirtation that the girl now begins, that they are left alone in a bedroom with two beds. Again, a surfeit of beds in this place. Uh, weird flirt where she says, you know, am I too old? Am I too young? And then he tries to or possibly succeeds in getting the gun from her i didn't follow this yeah well and this is where the muddled sound really confuses things because i really thought she said what's the matter are you too old too young i interpreted that as her asking basically why are you like this why are you so miserable you know you're a successful public figure you seem to have plenty of money you have this beautiful young wife like what is the matter with you no, she was saying, I, am I, what's the matter? Why aren't you hitting on me? Why aren't, were you getting it on? Am I too old? Or okay. Too she's, she's trying to have some power over him. And what? It would be weird that, that, that I'm, I'm the one misreading the heterosexual dynamic in this scene. I'm not saying it couldn't <laughs> yeah. happen, Glenn. I'm just saying. No, sure. <laughs> you missed some stuff in the Moonshine War. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, so the, Alexis kind of runs into the room and does something. I, again, I'm not clear on what the hell is happening here. But the upshot is... Kenner, um, Lucas Miller, tells Kingsley that you humiliated her. I'm not exactly sure how. Maybe by wrestling the gun away from her? I don't know. You should be wary of the young lady who humiliated her. Are you and she very close? Yeah, I think it, like she kind of grabs the, the shotgun and presses the barrel into his chest. It's like he's daring her to shoot him. Yeah. And he, he even says this to, uh, to Miller later that he could have gotten the, the shotgun away from her. He allows her to keep it yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. Um, we cut back to the judge who's in the safe house who is having one of those moments that in a different movie would be a cute little moment, a little, a little mini monologue to uh, characterize him and have just be like a thing with, um, like in Repo Man, with Plate of Shrimp, or <laughs> John Wayne was a fag. It'd be like yeah. a little moment like that. It'd be something like from a Quentin Tarantino movie where he says that the, the judge says that Canada does not have a romantic history of cowboys, of Wyatt Earps. Nice. And yeah. something I'd never really thought about and possibly true. Who the hell knows? You know what's different about so, Canada? It's just all the, just all the little differences. Yeah, it's a little differences. We get a weird moment that reminded me, and I think it's intended to remind me, of the scene in Night of the Hunter where Gish and, um, what's it? It's not Jack Palance. It is. It's not Robert Montgomery. Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Yes. Uh, A a scene in Night of the Hunter where Gish and Mitchum are both singing, uh, leaning on the everlasting arms, but they're singing two different versions of it. Mm. I can't remember what the song that gets sung here is. But they sing, Miller and um, Kingsley sing a song. Are, are we not talking it's, about God Rest You Merry Gentlemen? Is that it? It's definitely a Christmas carol. Miller goes, oh, God. Like, he's just cursing. He's just exhausted. He's, and <laughs> Patty McGee kind of leans in and he was like, rest ye merry. And <laughs> they trade off reciting 
the carol for 30 or 40 very confusing seconds. God. Rest. Ye. Merry. Gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ the Savior. Christmas Day. Yeah. To save us all from it wasn't Satan's power. To save us all from Satan's wolves. Yes, that's right. That's right. They didn't say Satan's power. It was uh, yeah. Tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. We have gone astray. Uh, and a nice moment because Kenner, when he hits, um, for we were led astray. He kind of hits it. And it's like that's what I'm talking about here, man. That's the point. That's what we're going out here. For we were led astray. Um, and again, again because nice you moment. sentenced my friend too harshly for after he had a car accident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Comfort and joy. Mm-hmm. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day. And there's a nice moment here where the SWAT team, I'm sorry, the special operations team, uh, <laughs> sings along as well. Uh, yeah. So we're yeah. this is turning into a musical already. This is already <laughs> they're off book. We see them actually diffusing one of the one of the booby traps at, at yeah. one point, and it's it's so weird to watch these because these scenes ordinarily like it seems like it's it's harder to shoot them in a way that is not suspenseful. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but Canner figured it out. It doesn't matter how inept a filmmaker you are, right? I mean, watching a guy defuse a bomb is is going to seem suspenseful usually. But in his defense. The SWAT team singing along. Oh, I love is, that. I know. I think that's good. It's such a nice moment. It's exactly the kind of thing that somebody making a bigger Hollywood film would steal from a movie like this. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> it is so nice, and you could you could see it happening. Yeah, and and actually, uh, Die Hard does. I mean, they do some fun clowning around with the SWAT team in that movie. Like when you see the the guys charge into Nakatomi Plaza, one of these big burly guys with an M sixteen pricks his hand on a rose and goes, "Ow!" And mm-hmm. yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of scenes of uh, Christmas Eve morning in Montreal, uh, and then we see a bunch of SWAT team members helicoptering onto the roof of, and this is an enduring problem with the movie. Are they are they helicoptering onto the roof of the apartment? Are they helicoptering onto the roof of the studio? I, it's unclear. There's a, a shot, like a, a panoramic shot, where the camera does a 360 around, and I, I couldn't tell if this was intended to make one helicopter look like several helicopters, or what, but there are one or a few helicopters, each with a single member of the special squad dangling beneath them. You're right. And they seem not to be either lowering or being picked up. They seem to be just kind of hanging. And I, I again, I was trying to make sense of this from the very confusing audio. So like, are they thinking that maybe like there's a pressure sensor on the roof and like that will detonate the explosives if they actually step on it. But I couldn't figure out what was happening there. Yep. Uh, Kingsley's wife goes upstairs to freshen up and she's spied upon by the non-Christopher Hitchens dude. 
Kingsley gets to snap back at his boss at this point uh, in a nice moment that I think you have a clip of. Where he says, I've made, you've made lots of money, blah, 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 blah. I do hear you, Mr. Albini. I have made a very good living for myself and a very good living for you out of my strange accent and my wits. But believe me, sir, the uh, shotgun is pointed at my belly and my wife and child in a room adjacent to 20 pounds of jelly knife. So would you be kind enough, sir, to clear... The air. <laughs> so I would appreciate it if you would clear the air. Yep, see? Nice. This is exactly what you want. You, you, you hire a Patty McGee. You want some Patty McGee business. You get it here. He seems to be his own producer. He is not screening these calls. Nope. Right? He is just letting these call through. And before before they goes live, he asks his producer, theoretically his producer Charlie, if um, is everything's all set. And Charlie responds with two bursts of music. Not doesn't say anything. He just responds with music and then responds with a womp yeah. womp again. Uh, the town of Montreal we see is glued to their radios. Perhaps the entire nation of Canada. It is unclear. JXYL sounds for the eve of Christmas. JXYL coming up with the events of this day just as they have. The station they do tell us to make this just a, a weirder scene that all of this is being broadcast not just on the radio but over tannoys in, in public spaces. Like there's some exposition about how oh, it's our public service, how we play Christmas music <laughs> outside every year. Chris, you just said a word I've never heard before in my life. Tannoy. What's a tannoy? Uh, so the tannoy is a, is a loudspeaker. For some reason, I associate it with those kind of squarish looking ones that we saw particularly in um, the episode Checkmate. Mm-hmm. When uh, he's ignoring the order to to move to the next position on the chessboard, and the camera zooms in on, you know, knight to queen's four, knight to to queen's four, queen's to queen's four, four. queen's yeah. four, queen's four. Uh, tan t a n o y t t t a n n o y. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it seems to be a yeah. I don't know if that's an antiquated term or what. It's certainly a. I mean, I had to look it up I the first time I, I encountered mean, it, but that's what. It saves time from saying a really long word like loudspeaker, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm here for it. Um, so uh, we get a nice moment of Kingsley introducing Lucas Miller. Uh, some good play on words, because that's what he do. Mm-hmm. Morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is Station JXYL, and this is uh, the John Kingsley Gossip Shop. You will have read your newspapers, watched your television, so that you'll be aware of what is happening. I'm, I'm almost tempted to use uh, as a text for the servant today a line I remember from school by a poet called John Dunn. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. I happen to have with me in the studio today a desperate man. He has a sort of shotgun and a grievance. He's about to ventilate and possibly thereafter me. I give you most willingly Mr. Lucas Miller, lecturer in history and most anxious to make a small dent in that history for himself. And then when Miller launches into his tirade, it's clear he is not radio ready. He's very nervous. And I think... um, um, (laughs) The fuck's his name? Kessler, it's not Kessler. What the Kingsley. Kings, no, not Kingsley. Canner, Canner. Canner, yeah. Sorry. And I think Canner, who, by the way. Just call him number 48. Yes. Canner, 
in this, he has grown into, he didn't have it on The Prisoner, but here he has a real Paul Dano face. Did you, did you see what hmm. I'm, you see what I'm getting at there? Mm. He is, there's a real Paul Dano quality to his facial structure in this movie. Okay, I don't see it. Paul Dano, to me, looks like a guy who, it's just round, you know, round, no, round, I'm round, telling, and smooth, round and smooth, round and smooth. He has softened into Danohood. Yeah, um, but it didn't soften that much. No, no, no. But I mean, so anyway, he makes this case, does Miller, uh, that Mackenzie, the man, his friend, who was recently convicted, wrongly, he says, he makes a pretty tight case for that, um, citing precedent, citing instances, using witness testimony. Right, and, and, and actually they, accuses the police of tampering with the vehicle after the fact or something. Yep. To, yeah. Yep. Which they then later admit that they did, right? Which is a thing you would never... They would never fucking do on the air. It's that's when like either a lot of time has passed or uh, <laughs> the institutions of the state have uh, have changed fundamentally or this movie just got something wrong because I think this movie just got something wrong. Yeah, this is like the FBI just saying, oh, yes, we were doing all this underhanded shit to try to discredit MLK Jr. <laughs> you got us. Yeah, it's not it's not a thing. Um, so the calls start coming in. He gets a call from a religious fanatic who, uh, just wants to pray. And, uh, it's clear that for whatever else, whatever limitations the script has, uh, uh, Alexis Scanner has listened to some talk radio in his day because you do get the nuts. So many people are calling in that the people he wants to call in, that, that, uh, Miller wants to call in, uh, judge, the judge's captors cannot get through, uh, the phone lines, which is, I think, a nice touch. Eventually he does get through and uh, the judge says that he will not comment on the case and then proceeds to come in on the case just as he did the day before on the radio mm. and then pff, has a heart attack yeah. and the actor who is playing the judge underplays the heart attack it doesn't really register yeah. he just seems to stop right which maybe that uh, it's choice maybe uh, who reports the heart attack because i think kingsley patty mcgee then says uh, perhaps uh, as the beatles said with a little help from his friends Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the the goons are the ones who say, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Okay, so it was an accident. They didn't mean to kill him. They didn't poison him. They didn't give him something to induce cardiac arrest. Yep. Which causes McGowan slash uh, Kingsley to react. And he gets up and he tries to strangle Alexis Counter slash Miller. This is a fight scene, or the closest this film yeah. will come to a fight scene, to an action scene. Uh -huh. uh, the girl comes over with a shotgun. Canner is motioning her because he cannot speak because uh, <laughs> McGowan's yep. uh, hands are wrapped mm -hmm. around his throat to not kill him. Yeah. Um, uh, this is absolutely clearly the part where uh, McLean strangling Carl with that chain. At, yeah, sure. Clearly that's where that came from, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ho, ho, ho. I've got a gun. Um, we cut back to the station and the head cop is getting into an argument with Kingsley's father-in-law. This is a moment that seems to come back later in a way that I did not understand, but we'll get to that. Um, Miller gets up and starts to negotiate with the cop on the air. This is when the cop says, we've investigated some of this stuff, and yes, in fact, it's true. We are corrupt. <laughs> it's just not a thing. You know, I feel like if it was going to happen somewhere, it would happen in Canada. Yeah, that's certainly true. Back to more calls coming in. At one point, Kingsley corrects a caller's French, which is great because he's in Montreal <laughs> and he is uh, superciliously correcting the number of words in French that end with uh, O-U-X, uh, like bijou, and uh, at one point he says, boop, 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 boop. 
because, as we see, he has made it through an entire bottle of Tanqueray <laughs> over the course of the last 24 hours, and he is shit-faced. This is when we get to see some uh, dancing Patty. He starts uh, tripping the light fantastic uh, all by yeah. himself on that uh, not-carpeted rug. And um, he is arguing, He, as far as I could tell, again, it was tough to make out, he was arguing about how actors mangle Shakespeare, which in this particular film is highly ironic because this dialogue is being just kind of mangled by the sound mix. Um, yeah, I, I definitely had to play this monologue a couple times to get it, and I was rewarded for my efforts, Glenn, because we do get some insight, some backstory into Kingsley here. Apparently he wanted to be an actor but never succeeded, and he actually frames that as the reason he does not fear being killed by his captors because there are many kinds of death and having already experienced death, I guess, of uh, failure, of inability to, to realize his dream, he doesn't fear it now. Um, you know, I would think he would still fear for the life of his, the lives of his wife and child. But uh, anyway, I'm gonna, gonna play the, the speech because this is the, the codex, the answer key that tells us what Kingsley is about. I remember the house where I was born I remember, I remember when the sun came peeping in at morn. I remember carrying a spear back of the stage. Theatrical show, Shakespearean, and the leading man is out front. I felt I could have done much better. I always wanted to be in his position at the front instead of the back. I never got the chance, you see. The chance! So that listening to the leading man, garbling the lines of Shakespeare, and out front, in front of you, in front of my audience, and I should have done it, sir, that front, on a stage, garbling and spouting lines, but it never came my way. I never got thought. That's a little kind of death, don't you think so? At this point, the wife of the cop who was killed calls in and proceeds to poke a few holes in Miller's case. And that's all it takes for the Christopher Hitchens-esque goon back at the apartment. He tells Kingsley's wife... I think his name is Elizabeth. Um, we don't find that out until much, much later. Right. Tells her to uh, lock herself and the kid in yeah. the middle bathroom. Again, lots of bedrooms, lots of bathrooms. These people are rich. Yeah. Um, the child's name, critically, is is Christopher, I think. Okay. He calls in. The Christopher Hitchin calls into the radio show and says he's out. I think he also says that they've undone the tripwires and all that stuff and then uh, I think so. this causes him mm. to get attacked by the other. We do not see much of this quote unquote action scene. We do hear it though. We hear a highly incongruous yeah. scream that seems to be Alexis Kenner's voice. Yes. On the soundtrack we hear Christopher Hitchens the bomb expert getting his skull caved in and what we see it just Looks like he kind of fell over and is taking a nap. There's no blood. There's no... No, but the creepy non-Hitchens guy is hitting him over the head 
indirectly, we only see it like from behind a chair. Yeah. Um, with with the phone. I'm not saying I want more gnarly gore. It's just difficult to understand what's happening. I mean, I get that he he kills Hitchens, the explosives expert, but mm-hmm. that should be a, a a frightening moment, and it just it's kind of funny, you know. It's because the screams continue long after the mm-hmm. body we see is completely inert. It is lying on the floor, motionless, and yet. We still hear those, and again, yeah. it sounds like it's Alexis Kenner. It sounds like Alexis Kenner was in the editing booth. And thought, <laughs> okay, it doesn't convey. Yes, and you just go into Studio Three and scream into the mic. This is uh, um, Stanley Kubrick, heavy breathing into the microphone while they're cutting the scene of Hal Nine Thousand being yep disemboweled or not disemboweled. Exactly. What would we beheaded, uh, disassembled? Got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so a cop calls saying that Kingsley's wife and kids are free. That's all it took. <laughs> it's, it's, a yeah, really quick, yeah. it's a really quick de-escalation. And this is the scene I don't understand, and I'd love it if you could help me unpack this. But back at the police station, Kingsley's wife arrives. She has a scene with her father, and something happens between them that I don't understand. He is campaigning for her to do something. I think he, he wants her to leave Kingsley. Okay. I don't re- remember in what context this comes up, but I mean, Kingsley is, he is seemingly like reeling off his enemies and he says, uh, you know, one, he's like my boss, my father-in-law and several husbands. So apparently he, he is a philanderer as I, I think is suggested by the way that the woman yeah. convinces him to bring her back to the studio. Indeed. Although I, I, again, just like as a contrivance, I don't, I don't understand how that helped Miller get in. You know, unless yeah. he just like left the door open behind him, but whatever. No, but that's she. She let him in. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so it's just the two of them now, except that's what um, McGowan says, completely ignoring the fact that it is not, in fact, just the two of them. There is a girl with a gun <laughs> in the room, um, and the whole thing. We weren't clear on this at the beginning because the film wasn't clear on this in the beginning. But like the idea is that Miller is trying to make a case that Mackenzie was wrongly convicted, and he wants people to call in with their verdicts of guilty or not guilty. So this is what starts to happen now. The calls start coming in, uh, guilty, 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 because they're more convinced by the Mackenzie's, the dead cop's wife than they were by his arguments. But, you know, if there's something I like about this film, I don't think it's the taut two-hander it kind of wants to be. I, I, I think there is a more streamlined more audible, <laughs> more discernible kind of real confrontation between these two fine actors who are theoretically on the top of their games, but it just, it gets a little muddled. But I, if there's anything I really admire about this, it's that this guy, this Miller guy, is an academic. He would think all he needs to do is make an argument and he will convince people. Like that makes yeah. sense to me. And the, and the fact that he's not good at it, also kind of makes sense to me. I spent some time in academia, and I know that people's ideas of who, yeah. what they're like and how effective they are at communicating their ideas is often not matched to how effective they are at communicating their ideas. I mean, can, can't you just to, like imagine the version of this movie that would have come out in the early 90s and been directed by probably Joel Schumacher? You know, it's... Uh, I, I don't remember. I don't remember falling down well enough to uh, think whether that's See, a, a. I think Chris, this if you try to make this into a big budget thing, it's just going to lose its 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 backbone. I think this needs to be a play. I think this needs to be like a almost a black box, like two or three hundred play. It has to be something more like talk radio. It has to be something. 
uh, intimate and claustrophobic for it to work. And- that would be good. I mean, I, I think this this version of it is just just baffling. Yeah, it's it's caught between. It's caught between. It doesn't know exactly. You where get it a to journeyman be. director. You get you get any hack in here. A Joel Schumacher, um, and they yeah. would they would turn in something watchable, you know. And you get an uh, an artist like Canner, who I don't think has any other directing credits. I don't know. But yeah, he's trying to push it to be expressionistic in a way that just pushes it over into not into unclear. Into unclear. Yeah, the I, actually the sense he's doing more disorienting stuff with the sound than the visuals, although plenty with the visuals. I, I actually wondered if um, the conversation, the Coppola movie, was a yeah. was a film he was aping things from here because I mean that film's all about how like we hear people say things that we don't understand and we hear those same phrases repeated throughout the movie and only in you know the final scene of the movie do we get what the meaning of those oft repeated phrases were you know and of course it's you know it's about a a, a bugger about a, a sound engineer a sound surveillance guy so it's all, all of the distortion and you know effects of manipulating all these sounds electronically is is a part of the disorienting effect of, of that film too mm-hmm. yep so the calls come in and it's like mm-hmm. uh the the opening scene of superman the movie guilty 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 uh and then we get See one that, guy but that's that's gimmicky just... that's gimmicky right like that i mean that's why i'm saying like this seems like a this would be a high concept early 90s studio movie mm-hmm. where it's like we're gonna have the real trial in front of the people a jury of uh my real peers who are just gonna listen on on the radio and i can see why canner would want to sue over this not because Die Hard has very much to do with this but i can imagine the the hollywood version of this film mm-hmm. and I, I can imagine the downtown black box theater version of this play yeah. <laughs> that I think I'd, I think I'd like better. Um, I would too, Glenn. I'm, but I'm saying like, this would absolutely, this would have happened in the early nineties and yep. it, it would have been Ron Howard or Joel Schumacher or one of those steady, reliable, unflashy yep. studio because of, guys. because of the budget limitations of this film, when he tries to do something, he's trying to incorporate, he's trying to place, this conflict in context by having all these shots of people listening to the radio across Montreal. But they're so so clearly, if not stock footage, just like hastily shot through a window with overlapping dialogue, ADR dialogue saying, oh yes, I, I don't trust him. Like, and that doesn't build out the world. It, yeah. It just underscores how how little money. <laughs> we return a few oh, times to the, the shot of these three ladies who are, who are yes, crowded the around. Fates, the wood. I call them the, <laughs> yes. fates, the, norms, <laughs> the weird sisters. Yes. yes. <laughs> the weird sisters. <laughs> and this one girl who is maybe Aldini's mistress who has a radio. A heart shaped, shape, like a, a plushy heart. heart radio. Okay. Uh, was it a heart or was it a pair of lips? I, I, think it, a, I it could, might have been a, yeah, I think it was, you're right. It was I couldn't tell. Okay. I didn't get that she was an Aldini. I, I thought she was one of Kingsley's mistresses because she had Maybe. a, I, she had an autographed picture of Kingsley. Yeah. So yeah, I thought yeah. she was like a groupie that he brought back to the studio a couple yeah. times. Um, so we get guilty, 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 but because it is the 70s and, and the film wants to remind us of that, we do get one guy who says, we should all be just relating to each other more, man. And I thought that was appropriate. <laughs> At this point, Robert McKenzie, the guy who was, quote unquote, wrongly convicted, calls in 
and says, yes, I was guilty. Did you understand me? I said I was guilty. Uh, it doesn't land with the power it should. Yeah. And also, again, Miller really should have just, you know, checked with the guy before <laughs> launching this elaborate two-pronged, three-pronged, if you count the judge, three-pronged yeah. assault on Canadian civil decency. But uh, there you go. At this point, uh, Kingsley says an Englishman's idea of privacy is a railway car entirely to himself for a million miles journey, in which case I thought I, I must be an Englishman because that sounds pretty sweet to me. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like two minutes of privacy, your favor, if you don't mind, to speak for a couple of minutes with my wife. Sorry about the need for privacy, but as you know, an Englishman's idea of privacy is a railway carriage entirely to himself for a million miles journey. Sorry for the request. On the other hand, uh, Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You'll have a musical background, so you won't miss anything, I promise you. If you'll be so kind, thank you so much. Where's my wife? Kingsley talks to his wife in a scene that I think is supposed to be tender, but he just comes off squirrely. He just comes off magooey, right? He just, like, there's, it doesn't... Yeah. He is still stiff and Im- imperious, even as he's supposed to be, even as this is the, this is supposed to be his vulnerable humanizing moment. I uh, have certain things to say to you, but as always, I'm not able to say them in the way that I should. And she is just simpering, right? Like she yeah. is nothing. She was a public figure at this time, particularly in Canada. You know, she was much written about in her presence in campaign events and things like that. But I don't think she had any acting experience, mm-hmm. really. And um, it really seems like she doesn't know what to do with herself. Yeah. Yeah. The soldier of fortune, Thomas Mendip, that you always said I could play. Well, you thought that I would be quite good in the part. I still do. Well, there's just a little thing that he said. I hope you remember it. Oh, oh. It doesn't matter. No, no, I won't be. And I had to come and be a damnable exception. Here we go, all right. You've done your worst. You put a rainbow over your faces. You forced me to tell you the disastrous truth. I, like a tomfool. Kingsley then uh, takes his hat and, and his scarf. He scarfs up and he proceeds to walk out the door. And then we see and hear the shotgun blast. Um, and we do see a close up of the shotgun barrel and a spark. That doesn't seem like it was added later. It seems like that's a thing that was part of the deal. It seems like a highly dangerous shot to make in a movie this low budget, but there you are. Then we see lots of shots around the city, brought to you by the Montreal Tourist Board, and then some screams. Uh, we cut back. It turns out Miller has turned the shotgun on himself. Is that what we're led to think? Doesn't Kingsley say that later? Yeah. He's, he's lost himself, he says, which is can be interpreted in multiple ways. 
The sound you heard was Mr. Miller losing his head all over the walls of my studio. Thank you for your patience. Please tune in tomorrow. The subject for tomorrow's program, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, government spending. Please phone in with your opinions. Always be nice to hear from you because do remember, this is your program. Uh, the girl is kneeling over him. She's the one who was screaming. Uh, and by the way, I fear for all of the, I mean, at least... Most of the surfaces in that place are hard and not porous, so it's going to be a very simple job of cleanup because, <laughs> you know, you can you can clean up laminate really easily. He stays there. Elizabeth, his wife, comes over, and they start going at it, man. They tongue each other, and the spit goes flying. And the, no, that, of course, that doesn't happen because this is Patty McGee. <laughs> And he does the thing where he goes up to her and he does, I swear to God, it's the Nadia hair. <laughs> well, I mean, Nadia, it's that same hair thing he yeah. does to her. Uh, he looks like he's about to, to kiss her, but he just says, let's go. And um, they leave. Yep. These two people, one of whom was involved in a crime scene, just sort of leave. End of movie. And what are we hearing on the soundtrack? Is it a kid's? Is it, is I think it? it's God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen again. Yeah, yeah, sure. We, we get several yeah. versions. We get the pipes. We get the mm-hmm. an instrument that I can't identify that has sort of a buzzing sound. Mm-hmm. Um, Klezmery, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And maybe it's God Rest Ye Merry, comma, gentlemen. Maybe it's God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Who knows? Or God rest, ye merry gentlemen. Who knows? Yeah, well, the, but, uh, the, yeah. the scene where, where Kingsley gives a, a monologue about how to punctuate this properly is uh, lost yeah. to time, unfortunately. <laughs> the uh, We get in the thank you credits, which are, again, tough to read on the YouTube dub of a video <laughs> tape. Uh, one of the people thanked is a Jack S. Kenner. So is that his dad? Is that his son? It's hard to, it's hard to know. I don't know. Again, this movie radiates with potential. Like, this movie could have been something much simpler or much more elaborate. It is hovering in the middle here with a defiant undercurrent of artsy-fartsiness that is, it's, it, it's needlessly complicating and obfuscating the experience. But Pat G is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, if we're, we're making this a study of him, of his increasing weirdness, the next time we see him after this is, is Scanners. Yep. Where he is, you know, an even more hostile and forbidding guy. But he does get that batshit death scene at the end. Yeah, oh, yeah, ripe. The ripe program. Ripe indeed. <laughs> Must be stopped! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, and according to Cronenberg, he was drinking heavily during that production and seemed... Deeply unhappy. So this is an essential part of the chronology. And if anything, he seems to have, he, he seemed to harbor on the series The Prisoner an affection for the actor Alexis Kenner and what Alexis Kenner brought. And so for them to be able to do 
what in their minds and possibly even on the script page was a two-hander of them just kind of facing off and, and playing mind games with each other. Like, I'd like to see that movie. This, this isn't it. Uh, but it's there under the surface, you know. There, there are glimpses of the the film this could have been, under the surface, but it's um, obscured. No, I, I agree. But I mean, in that, you know, I mean, we, they had already done. Um, what's the? Come on, we agreed it was the best episode of the Prisoner. It was the penultimate episode. It was you know filmed a year before Fallout was, but. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's basically a, a two hander in a black mm-hmm. box. Why have helicopters in this? You know, why why have the special branch running up the stairs? You know, it, it pulls focus, yeah, and yep. just highlights the deficiencies. And, and, I mean, it did remind me in a lot of ways of uh, other films of particularly like like Nicholas Rogue movies sure. of of the seventies. You know, watching those when I was a little younger and just finding the technique very. Intimidating, and and I mean, it was a lot of stuff where the visuals and sound aren't synced in a way that I was used to seeing, which which we also get here. I mean, I think there are some technical limitations accompanying the artistic ambitions. It's difficult to parse where the one ends and the other begins. I had the sort of sense memory of the way that I would I would feel when I would happen to tune into one of these movies and was just. So baffled just, again, by the technique of it, by the cinematic language, by it, it not being the cinematic language that I was used to, that I almost found them scary. Right. But see, with Nicholas Rogue, even when I am baffled by what, on why something is happening, when I'm baffled by the cine- cinematic language because I don't understand it, I still understand the syntax of the language. <laughs> I understand what is happening here there are many times when i just didn't understand what i'm supposed to take away from this scene what is being said who is saying it that is an artistic impulse toward capturing the hurly burly of life that is obscuring the basic cinematic syntax of of storytelling in a way that some people love some people really think like uh, if you look up this movie and there are people who are like letterboxing it. Uh, man, there is a profound, deep love for this movie, for its unconventional structure, nature, uh, assemblage. Yeah. <laughs> but Chris, now it comes the time for us to rate on a scale of one to six. What do you think? Mm. Zero to six, I suppose. Zero to zero six. To... Let's be fair. We've done that before. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there is no number zero in the village. So, which really should be one to six, I suppose. I think I have to give it a four for the sheer tonnage of unhinged Patty McGee seemingly improvising mm. much of the time. I don't know about that. You, you don't think so? You, you, think okay. So. okay. No, no. I, he doesn't seem like a riffer, that guy. And, and if you compare the scripts of, the prisoner to like the finished product. He, you know, he he will rewrite until the last minute. But like, he seems like a guy who likes a script. He doesn't seem like a improv guy. Yeah, you compare the way he is in this and the way he is in Silver Streak. Yeah, you know where he has a a studio money man. I mean, he's yeah. still talking about oh my little scenarios. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's not giving lessons on French. Grammar. Boop, boop, um, boop. Um, 
Yeah. See, here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna grade this twice. Once for if I was just coming into this blind as a movie by itself too, because it's <laughs> often incomprehensible. Inc- 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 but as in this context, as a Patrick McGowan podcast, four to six. I mean, it, it is as you say, it is a great. It's filled with great Patrick McGee moments. It's filled with the moments where he is serving you exactly what you want him to serve you, and he's doing it. In a very familiar way, even though, even even though the the film around him isn't always, I keep coming back to legible, but that's not right. Even though the film coherent, is comprehensible. Yes, it's it's not. Um, it doesn't make any. What is the word? Fucking sense. Um, I can think of examples where where the like this sort of hybrid of thriller and and artsy thing has worked better. I mean, I'm thinking of. No Country for Old Men, right? Which ends with sure. this this violent confrontation that's entirely off screen. Like we we miss it. We never we never see it. Like the the Coens kind of tease the audience into thinking they want this and then pull the rug out from under them. Or honestly, you're gonna roll your eyes and cluck your tongue and stuff. But honestly, the feature version of Miami Vice, Google it, Glenn. Better <sighs> better critics than I will will defend the film on its sensory merits. And Alexis Kanner is. True, he doesn't have a Michael Mann budget, but he also doesn't have Michael Mann talent. Or Michael Mann's cocaine. Mm. Uh, well, although maybe it's 77, so maybe he did. Who knows? It's hard to say. I, d- um, yeah. I don't think there's any. I haven't heard anything about Michael Mann being. Uh, he's, he's obsessive, but uh, yeah. I've never yeah. heard anything about him. Yeah. Maybe it just was all on the screen. All that cocaine. Um <laughs> Chris, are you a fan? Do you listen to the podcast Wooden Overcoats, which I have recommended to several people and even to you on several occasions? Have you? I don't remember this. Wooden Overcoats? Wooden Overcoats. It is a fiction podcast, a very, very funny fiction podcast set on a tiny fictional island in the English Channel uh, where there's two uh, rival undertakers. It is very cozy British, but um, it is also... Uh, incredibly funny and incredibly uh, well acted and well written. There has been throughout the series. It's now in its fourth and I think final series um, uh, season, I suppose you would say. Uh, a undercurrent of prisoner stuff hmm. just under the surface. Yeah. And on a very recent episode called "Once Upon a Long Time Ago," uh, all the undercurrent of prisoner stuff kind of comes to the fore in a way that I found uh, again. Not not so much that it derails the overarching structure of the podcast, but because it's there, people saying be seeing you, and, and nobody points to it, nobody underscores it, nobody underlines it. It's there if you're a Prisoner fan and you happen to like British comedy uh, or just comedy in general. Um, so I, it's a huge recommendation. Again, if you're waiting for the Prisoner stuff, it's going to take a long time to get there. But I <laughs> okay. hugely recommend listening to Wooden Overcoats from the beginning because it is uh, very rich Good. and very funny. And, uh, that's good. Yeah, we know we should have an, an endorsements segment, and and that's yours. We should do that. I, I've also been toying with the idea of introducing a, a segment where we pay tribute to some of the great roles that Patty McGee played after his death in two thousand nine. How would that work? Roles he played after his death? What, yeah. How would that work exactly? You know, I mean, I thought his Professor X was very good after uh, Patrick Stewart walked away in a salary dispute, and um, had to recast Patty McGee. Okay, are you? Are you having a stroke? Is this? Are you okay? You're in very good shape. Are you, possibly, possibly. Yeah. Okay. You know, just the the McG roles that we didn't get that we should have. Okay. Glenn. Okay. He would look lousy 
and with bald with a bald head. Like he doesn't look good here, hair wise, because in uh, uh, mm. Kings and Desperate Men, uh, he's doing that thing that a lot of people did in the seventies, where they take the hair on the side of their head and they poof it way out. Uh huh. So it's not like it's the opposite of a fade. It's yeah. Like, no, my my hair does that, Glenn. Yeah, it's not. I recently went, I went 10 months without a, a haircut. I consulted a barber in February. Mm-hmm. When I got uh, at the ripe old age of uh, nine, my uh, Superman, the movie action figure of Christopher Reeve as Superman, the face looked exactly like him, but they had this weird poofed out hair. And I spent the entire time I had him kind of just pressing the sides of his head in when I <laughs> played with him because it just <laughs> bugged me so much that he had this big poofy hair when in fact in the movie he doesn't i think what happened mm-hmm. is that they probably took they probably modeled it on a like a costume test right mm-hmm. when they when he had he's wearing the costume but he they hadn't he hadn't out packed his, on hadn't, the weight like, yet they hadn't brill creamed his hair for shit because like that that <laughs> hair is really david prouse had in the movie yeah give him uh, his aggressive weight training program before yeah, they, they that, molded the action figure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, maybe it's just that his chest, his shoulders are narrower and his hair is the same and it just uh, <laughs> seems out of proportion. Yeah. I will try to find a, a picture of this action figure and you will you will concur that it's just- It's actually wrong. based on the uh, Nicolas Cage screen test. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> from 1998 or whenever that was. Mulleted, but... super mulleted. Yes. <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, what is next? Maybe we should go to, uh, what's the one that's on the Criterion channel where he plays the jazz musician, Johnny Cousin? Johnny Cousin. Yeah, what's that What's that called? There's actually a video on the Criterion channel of uh, Wyatt Cenac saying how much he, he loves this film and how okay. much he, he loves this British director's films all night long. Okay. All night long. <laughs> it's on the Criterion channel. It's a good movie, a great Lionel Richie song. <laughs> or we could do Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Either way, it's it's going to look and sound better than Kings Why? and Desperate it's, it's Men. Baby, baby's not anywhere. It's on Blu-ray. Training. It's on it's, Blu-ray. It's not. I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to buy a Blu-ray. Baby, the Secret of the Lost Legend. <laughs> you can write it off your taxes, Glenn. Oh my God. I'll send you a rip. Then let's go Criterion. Then. Okay. Yeah. So next up. All night long. From what year? Uh, it's Danger Man era. It's 62, oh. I think. Okay, so it's black and white. Yes. It's going to be cool and mm-hmm. skinny ties. And uh, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Peep this. This sounds fucking incredible. All night long, directed by Basil Dearden. That's an English name. 1962, United Kingdom. Othello is translated to the world of 60s London jazz clubs and Basil Dearden's smoky and sensational all night long. Over the course of one eventful evening, the anniversary celebration of the musical and romantic partners Aurelius Rex, Paul Harris, and Delia Lane, Marty Stevens, a jealous, ambitious drummer, Johnny Cousin, Patrick McGoon, attempts to tear the interracial couple apart. This daring psychodrama also features on-screen appearances by jazz legends Charles Mingus, Dave Brubeck, Tubby Hayes, and Johnny Dankworth. I know two of those four jazz legends. But wow, who can we get? Who knows about jazz? <laughs> who do we know who knows about jazz? I, I, I know no one who knows about jazz. Even Thompson doesn't know about jazz. I don't know. 
I want to read you this list of titles that I have under the heading Made You Look. Mm-hmm. You announced some of these in Pop Culture Happy Hour. So uh, mm-hmm. I've got Dead Heat, which I just watched and is not good, but it's a buddy cop zombie movie mm-hmm. directed mm-hmm. by Stephen Goldblatt, who is credited as an editor on a lot of big movies from the 80s. Uh, Stuart Baird is a name who comes to mind when I try to think of people who graduated from editing to directing. And then Baird went back to editing eventually. Okay. But among his credits as an editor include our Superman, the movie, uh, you know, Donner Superman. Um, and then he made uh, U.S. Marshals, the Harrison Ford list sequel to The Fugitive. It's not bad. Mm-hmm. It's a, like a perfectly mm-hmm. fine kind of cops movie. Um and he made Executive Decision, which is a pretty decent skyjacking thriller from about 96. That's the one where Steven Seagal gets Janet Leigh, gets killed off 10 minutes into the movie, which was cool and unexpected because he got, mm-hmm. you know, high billing and everything. Um, and then he directs a, a Star Trek movie that was the one that Tom Hardy is in and is apparently really bad. And after that, for whatever reason, he never directs another movie. He goes back to being an editor. He goes back and edits Casino Royale. And, like, you know, he's editing... A-list films, high-profile films, but... Um, yeah, I think uh, Nemesis is the film you're talking about. That's it, that yeah, yeah. And it, it, it was reviled. I don't time. think I even saw it. Mm, yeah. So that makes sense that he would go back to editing, crawl back. Uh, but anyway, so Dead Heat is directed by Goldblatt and uh, the two buddy zombie cops, Glenn. It's it's a film that, that coasts on the, the simply radioactive chemistry of Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Oh, good Lord. Good Lord. Hang on, buddy. I'm going to throw you a lifeline here. Vincent Price is in it. Okay, but he's he's not at his peak, right? (laughs) This is, this is, that's probably post-Scissorhands, right? That's post-Scissorhands. Yeah. yeah, Was Scissorhands his last No, sorry. No, Scissorhands is 90 and and this is 88. Oh, uh, I also have Hudson Hawk. I have Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which, uh, believe it or not, I just I just watched for the first time like two it's weeks ago. Pretty great. Touch of Evil, which is Touch just, of evil, just of one of my favorite movies. Um, Chris, uh, uh, do you know of this uh, Wordle-like game, which is about box office? I've like, seen it. You would smoke it. You would be... Uh, maybe. Be, it's, you're the person this game is made for. Why are you not playing it? I don't know. Every day. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We already watched Zardoz together. It sink once, but but we can we can do it again. And I, in fact, yeah, I think we I think we need to do it again. <laughs> oh, and Legend, your your um, you've never seen that Anchor Bay. No, and I got this for you, and I've never oh, I've never man. even seen it. We are all animals, my lady. Oh my God, Tim Tim Curry at his Tim Curryest. At the spicy curry. This is going to be our our tie-in when Top Gun Maverick comes out in two months. We're going to bring out our our legend episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, sir. All right. So next is All Night Long. That's streaming on the Criterion Channel. So this is more readily available than any film we've done since Silver Streak. If you don't mind watching on YouTube, which you really should. It's terrible. That's a terrible experience. Yeah. The films on the Criterion Channel look great. Never, never had any problem with the Criterion Channel. Nope. Until then, be seeing you. Be seeing you. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour to had no intention to do the things we've done. 
Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our silly theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on bass. Find out more about Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. This song is by Townland, our friend Matt Gorley's band. Their new album, Honey on the Hi-Fi, is on Bandcamp now. I strongly recommend it. All the other songs are Gorley originals. This, of course, is the cover of All Time High, the Bond theme song from Octopussy. I always thought that since that movie came out in 1983, the year in between 1999 and Purple Rain, the move for Cubby Broccoli would have been to try to get Prince to write a title song for Octopussy, but we can't have everything we want. Anyway, check out Townland on Bandcamp. The album is Honey on the Hi-Fi. Thanks to Matt for letting us use his song. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degreeabsolute at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Not a Number Pod. Follow us on Instagram at a degreeabsolute. And leave us a five-star review on Apple, Stitcher, whatever podcast you use to hear our show, along with your wildest prisoner take. And of course, we will read that prisoner take on a future episode. Maybe 35 hostages, probably on the 30th floor. Seven, maybe eight terrorists. Uh, sounds like a, a standard uh, A7 scenario there. Thank you. We'll handle it from here. When we need to commandeer your men, we'll try and let you know. Aren't you forgetting something? Such as? John McClane. He's the man who gave us all the information we've got. He's the reason you're facing seven terrorists instead of 12. He's inside? Who is he? He may be a cop. We're checking on that. One of yours? No, sir. If he's not a terrorist and he's not a hostage, he's just not part of the equation. That's the same goddamn thing the terrorist said. Ah, uh, really? Well, that's one good thing. We know we're dealing with pros. The gun! Drop the gun! Oh, now I'm gonna show you. I got absolutely nothing on underneath, all right? No hidden guns. I don't even have a chest protector on. Absolutely nothing. I mean, I don't want you to look stupid, right? I lay the gun down. You let the girl go. I'll be your hostage. I'm putting the gun down. As a rookie cop, Nick Styles made an arrest. Now the only weapon I got left now is useless unless you're a pretty girl. <laughs> that launched him into the limelight. Assistant District Attorney Nicholas Styles has proven he can round up criminals. But the one conviction he never thought twice about. Remember Earl Talbot Blake? No, the name escapes me. 
never stopped thinking about him. I got things to live for. There's something real scary out on those streets. He's watching. Your closest associate had $10,000 in his possession before he died, and you have been linked to the disappearance of that money and child pornography. Somebody somewhere is enjoying this because things like this don't just happen. And waiting. What if it was somebody he locked up? I'm gonna make him pay for this. That's for damn sure they're gonna pay for this. <laughs> yeah, man, if you don't trust me, at least trust my main street homeboy. I want to see his face in the light of those cameras when they put the cuffs on, when it'll be... Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, Ice-T. Ricochet.